The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author, journalist, Heather Schumacher. Uh, she's, her new book is It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids. Heather Schumacher has an unusual stance on many hot-button parenting topics. For one, she believes we should ban homework and allow our kids to spend their time doing better things, and studies support her opinion. According to recent research, homework has no academic benefit in elementary school and has very little impact in middle school. Uh, In her latest book, Schumacher advocates for reinventing our concept of proper parenting, including doing away with homework during the early years, and not discouraging our kids from expressing their anger, even if it means being mean. Uh, Her writings have appeared in the New York Post, the Huffington Post, Parenting and Pregnancy. She also blogs at Starlighting Mama. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're going to obviously talk about your book and the new kind of parenting, and it's somewhat controversial. You, you know, you take some of these hot topics, uh, hot parenting topics, uh, p- topics that parents are wrestling with on a daily basis, and you sort of give a, a different perspective on how parents should handle the behaviors of, their, of your children. So what makes your parent, it's okay to go up the slide, uh, renegade rules for raising confident and creative kids, what does that mean, it's okay to go up the slide? How does that fit into this picture? Yes, well, it's not solely a book about playground equipment, <laughs> but it does take that idea that when kids are, are playing outside and parents and adults want them to go up the ladder and down the slide, and almost every child you meet, whether they're in Boston or Burma, wants to go up the slide once they meet a slide. Um, so it is um, taking a look at what what is driving kids from a child development point of view and what do kids really need and what sort of reactions and things do adults do that either help that or, or hinder that. So I think the whole book is, is meant um, literally going up a, a slide on the playground and the benefits of that and why uh, adults freak out. Um, but also metaphorically, it's, go, it's a countercultural book. It's, it's um, turning many um, bits of parenting wisdom that we have just never questioned that we've taken for granted and turning them on their heads and saying, we need to take a closer look at this. Let's maybe go against the prevailing culture and do what's best for kids. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the renegade rules. So what are some of those rules of parenting that we take for granted as parents, aside from just you know going up the, the slide, walking up right. the slide rather than sliding well, down? Because there are a lot of them. Yes. Well, for example, um, it's okay to talk to strangers. That's something that um, the book puts, instead of saying don't talk to strangers, this book is saying it's better when your kids talk to strangers. It's safer when your kids talk to strangers. 
Another one is... Well, let's um, start with that one. I don't want to let okay. that go because I can. parents who are listening are gasping. What are you saying? It's okay to talk to strangers? What do you mean by that? Uh, yes. How can that be safe? Yes. Well, you know, the don't talk to strangers, we've all heard that. We all grew up with that. But it doesn't keep kids safe, and it's not true. Um, unfortunately, um, family and friends, acquaintances, are most likely to harm children. And so the people that the kids already know, and any sort of stranger problem is incredibly rare. Strangers are most likely to be the helpers. They're most likely to be the kind person who stops and helps a lost, scared, or hurt child, or it's a police officer, firefighter, somebody who stops and helps. Um, So kids, what they're finding that helps kids stay safer is when they have a chance to interact with the world and develop street smarts, which includes getting a chance to interact with these people, whether they're strangers or not, and be able to gauge risk and learn how to set limits on people they meet. Is there a context for talking for strangers? Let's say, I mean, of course, if you're a young kid, you usually are going to be with an adult, either parent or somebody else, or in a school situation. Um, So, I mean, there are certain contexts when... I mean, if, you, if you're riding your bicycle and a stranger stops and wants you to get into their car, maybe that's not such a good time to talk to a stranger. Yes, well, I think, you know, talking isn't the problem. Uh, what we can do is just um, change the message a little bit in that case and say don't go with a stranger, don't get in their car even if they give you candy, just the way you'd calmly tell your child when if your house is on fire, you need to leave the building, don't even take your toys. It's just one of those basic stay safe bits of information. But but talking to strangers, you know, it's interesting you mentioned young children because this is exactly when we start telling kids don't talk to strangers. They're, they're little. They're three years old. They're four years old. And at those ages, children really are just confused about what we mean by a stranger. Kids often think that a stranger is somebody who's if you ask them, big and mean, or maybe they have a beard, or a stranger isn't a stranger once they tell you their name. Um, and then who is a stranger? The boundary is so confusing for kids. For example, a new babysitter that arrives is a stranger, and yet mom and dad will walk out of the house and leave you with this stranger. So there's so many different sorts of strangers, and it's just um, what's safer is to help kids guide their instincts, that kind of uh-oh feeling when something's wrong, and give them the basic infos, don't go with a stranger. Um, and then just help them develop um, interactions with people. So if, if they're able to talk to a stranger, say the librarian or somebody at the grocery store checkout, those are all strangers. But help the kids get comfortable talking and interacting with strangers, because ultimately it's their assessment of risk that is going to help keep them as safe as possible. So in order to, they really have to connect and negotiate with the world and to trust their own instincts. And in order to do that, I get what you're saying is, then you do have to interact. New experiences rather than... It necess- takes practice. Yes, it, it takes, takes pra- practice. Yeah. Yeah. And a new and experience includes a new person or someone that you've never met before. So right. this overall don't talk to strangers really does sound very negative when, as you explain it. And, and, it's and just confusing kind of back up. And, it, and it doesn't keep the kids safe. But, you know, another thing, I have another chapter that's linked to this topic, which is called It's Okay Not to Kiss Grandma. <laughs> so apologies for all the lovely grandmothers in the world. But this is linked because... Most often, it's the, the people the child knows who, who could hurt them, who do hurt them in reality. And so a child needs to learn and be encouraged to set boundaries on her body or his body, even if it's grandma coming for a visit or Uncle Joe or whoever it is, 
because um, learning to say no if you don't want to be touched a certain way is fundamental to staying safe. Yeah, and I think obviously, I think we mentioned a little bit earlier, the statistics uh, do uh, bear this out because the uh, child molesters, people who are usually are often, and I don't know, have the exact statistics, are Uncle Bob or, you know, your mother's boyfriend or a teacher, unfortunately, or a coach. People that you do know and trust are the ones who often are the ones who do take advantage of, right. of children. Yeah. And this is something that that we, we often don't, we hesitate to promote a kid saying no to adults. But this is, we need to um, to respect a child and help them grow up safely um, and with good self-confidence. We need to have them say no to um, a peer, a playmate, or an adult when, it's, when they don't like something. So let's say grandma gives juicy kisses and they just doesn't like the juicy kisses. It's, it's okay to say, I don't like I don't like kisses. I don't want to be kissed, and then have them shake hands or do something else. Um, but we get scared when we have kids say no to adults. We think it's defiance, and instead we kind of spread this message of be good, be nice, um, which means obey what the adult tells you to do. And that's a, a dangerous little bit of message there. Be a good girl. Be a good boy. That means do what you're told. In sort of social work uh, talk, uh, aren't we talking about boundaries, that kids have a right to uh, establish their own emotional and physical boundaries, even if it is with an adult? Yes, it is exactly boundaries. Um, you can call it boundaries. You can call it setting limits. I, I call it respect. We, respecting somebody, whatever their age is, means listening to them when they don't like something and respecting that boundary. All right, we're talking about renegade rules. Uh, that was sort of rule number one or uh, the first one on our list. What about some of these other rules that we as parents think uh, that we've just sort of accepted blindly that really shouldn't apply when we're raising children? Yes, well, um, safety first is another one that I like to turn on its head, and I have a chapter called Safety Second. Um, you know, being alive is fundamentally not a safe endeavor. We all die at some point. Um, we can get hurt at some point, either our feelings or our bodies. But being alive and growing and changing um, is what life's all about. So we have to allow our kids to take some degree of healthy risk. And I think what, um, what adults worry about is they think risk is the same as danger, and it's not. In fact, they're finding that if kids don't take enough healthy risks, they're actually less safe. Um, and I'm not just talking about physical risks. So physical risks might be running too fast on concrete or, you know, climbing a tree or running, um, riding their bicycle too fast. Those are physical risks. But there's also, we, we tend to shield them a lot from emotional risks and social risks. And we covered the social risks a little bit, like talking in public or talking to strangers. But uh, emotional risks, risks are an enormous one. That's really the risk of possibly feeling bad, um, feeling sad or angry or jealous or frustrated or having your feelings hurt by something somebody says. How do, I think that is the one that I see most often with parents, as you were saying, I agree with you. Somehow, and I think perhaps, I don't know if it has to do with it sort of tied in even with the helicopter parenting, that we are so afraid that our kids will be hurt or embarrassed or they will do, you know, or they will, uh, you know, cause another person to be hurt or embarrassed. And 
these emotional risks so we protect them or we are all, that's a real I think that's a real issue today especially with young parents and, and their kids um, I think it's gotten more so than it was maybe even 20 years ago yeah I think you're absolutely right there's people now who will not read the end of Charlotte's web they're too they don't want their kid to feel sad when when Charlotte the spider dies um, or people who put happy face stickers on their children's chest when they're crying because they want them to match their face to the um, sticker and always be smiling, be happy. Um, sometimes I like to blame it on the Constitution, this everlasting pursuit of happiness. But um, what we should be wanting for our children is not um, 100% happiness. It's the ability to cope with the full range of human emotions. And that includes sorrow sometimes and anger and fear. That's one we have trouble with too. And all the range of human emotions. Because even a very young child, even a two-year-old, has this full range. Maybe they're grieving because they didn't get a cookie, but it's still grief and it's still a genuine emotion. And sometimes we need to, we say things like, well, you don't feel that way. Or, for example, if they say something to their brother or sister, oh, you don't feel that way. You really love them. Deep down, you do. But that's negating how they're feeling at that moment. Yeah. And you hear that all the time when, you know, you're telling a, a child how they feel and, and you, you really love your sibling when really at that moment you don't love your sibling and you need to express that and you need to express your anger and then you can talk about it. And, uh, and, I, and it's sort of that stifling of one's emotions, as you say, is really not a good thing. What about, you know, because I was talking to a teacher the other day and, you know, now the kids have to, you talk about fear is the, the, you know, very difficult emotion, or parents see that, that they don't want their kids to be fearful. What about in light of all the, you know, the killings in the schools and now the, the lockdowns that they have and the preparation they do with the teachers? How does that fit into it? Are the kids, yeah. I mean, in, yeah. Well, that's something that we have to deal with. And, you know, now it's school shootings and things, but there's always been something in the news. So I have a section about dealing with news disasters. Um, it's tricky to talk about things that we wish did not exist. But they do exist, and here's, here's my fundamental philosophy, that if a child is old enough to ask, she's old enough to get an honest answer. So it doesn't mean that we need to go into great detail, but find out at what level she's wanting to know the information and, um, and answer the question. So when they're doing lockdown drills, um, I, I would put it in the same category as, as a fire. You know, the firefighters come to the children's school with their trucks and they hand out plastic hats, and the kids find it interesting and they learn something, but they don't get terribly fearful because they present it as in, if a fire happens, this is what you do. And the same thing with these lockdown drills. If a dangerous person is nearby, this is what you do. Um, and if they have questions, you can find out what they already know or what they're worried about and then go from there. But I wouldn't lie to the kids. You know, it's our instinct to say, I'll never let anything happen to you. You will always be safe. Um, I think they can see through that. And it's better to say something like, I will do everything I can to keep you safe. So parenting, you know, as you're describing, is a little more complicated than maybe we thought. You know, we, you really do have to sit down and think about it, how you approach all of the things that we've been discussing when you're talking to your kids. You can't give these sort of simple generalizations, I guess, that, that many parents have done and done it over time. This, um, you really have to be very specific. And also, do you think, um, Heather, each child is different in terms of what they feel comfortable with expressing themselves, risks, fears. All. Don't you, have, as a parent, have to be really tuned into that? 
Well, yes, I think I think we tend to realize that every child is is unique, and some of them are going to be more sensitive, or some of them are going to just have endless questions, and we need to take them as they come. But no matter what kind of child you have, I think um, as adults we shy away a bit from these tough emotions, um, and even if you haven't had any talks about sad topics or talked about death, for example, that's a big concept. Um, usually kids realize that they're going to die around age four and that not only that, but mom and dad are going to die and the goldfish. and It's a big deal. And that's often why kids do a lot of um, play involving death or shoot them up games involving now I'm dead, now I'm not. They're processing this very big concept. So, you know, check in with the kids for uh, once in a while and, and you don't have to have a super big talk, but they are already wondering these questions. They are already old enough to wonder and talk about it and be scared of some of it. So if it's a, if it's a topic important enough for you to talk about, whether it's sex ed or news disasters or deaths or anything big, then you probably want to be the one that the child hears about it first from and offer that nurturing and comfort. Uh, but there is one thing when you, I think about many parents who aren't prepared themselves to do it because they're terrified of death and also terrified of talking about it even amongst themselves as adults. That can be an issue. Um, and I think as a culture, we do not talk about death. I mean, in, in the context of, you know, trying to be comfortable with talking about it with our children, our culture, we don't, many times parents don't take children to their grandparents' funerals or in funerals in general because they don't want to expose them that, to that or very sick people they won't they're not truthful about you know mothers you know if they have a family member who's really sick uh, they hide it from everything and so those are very specific issues and i think that we're doing that's why your book is so important we're not really doing a good job with that when it comes to our children we really do try to it's sort of a cover up uh, when it comes to yeah, death. Yeah, it's a great cover-up that we yeah. are all immortal and will live forever. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it's important to realize that dealing with these concepts is, is an essential part of early childhood. You know, three- and four-year-olds um, are going to have questions, and stopping to look at a dead worm on the sidewalk is a good start. So in my first book, this is actually my second book, It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, but it's a follow-on to my first book called It's Okay Not to Share. And that book gets into a whole section on death education and sex education. So if people are interested, they can. it has sample words they can say and resources and how to approach these tough conversations. Because many of us, it, we will be nervous and embarrassed and, and have no idea what to say. So there's resources out there. Heather, what about you? You're talking about the dead worm. That may be easier to talk about than another, like, for instance, I want to, let's talk about another example. Uh, when you have a sibling who's sick or a, a sibling who's diagnosed with cancer or some other uh, debilitating condition, how do you handle that? With, you mean the difference between the dead worm and the yeah, sibling? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, well, you know, having uh, somebody in the immediate family who has a, a terminal illness or very grave illness, that, that brings things to a whole new level, whether it's a sibling or a parent. Um, and families need to be prepared for a roller coaster of emotions from many different people in the family. But there are, there are books that can help with, you know, if, if a sibling has a, has a disease. I think it's important for us to talk about um, diseases rather than sickness. Because kids get sick, and they will often think, oh, I'm sick. You know, I had to stay home from school and think that means I'm going to die because we toss around the word sick um, and explain that you have the kind of sickness that you're going to get better from in two days. 
So what's important is, I mean, as I'm listening to, be honest, really be honest with your own feelings, your own emotions, and kids pick up on that. And I think kids know when they're being told the truth or when parents are being honest with them. Uh, they, they may not be able to verbalize it, but they feel it, they know it intuitively. Yes, yes it's part of their survival instinct, it's, it's and they have very strong radar yeah. on, on that. Yes. All right, let's go to the next. What, what are, what's another renegade rule that we've imposed, you know, that uh, we've imposed these rules on our children? Um, you say that, here's another one that's a little bit different than what we've been talking about, but uh, participation is not necessarily necessary because we yes. do hear that all the Oh, you have to participate. You have to join this activity. Your kid is in the room and the other kids are playing. Well, why don't you join them and play with them? And your child doesn't want to do that. And so you're pushing them to do something that they don't yes, want to do. Forced group participation. This is something that happens a lot, especially uh, it, with young children. We we herd them into groups. Um, they're in a, a taught music class, or they're on a kiddie soccer team, or they're in their school class. And when they're in these group activities, um, it's sort of uh, there's an intense pressure for everybody to to do what the group is doing. Um, you, now we're dancing to the Wiggle Worm song, and everybody has to do it. Uh, a lot of children's learning takes place through observation. And so just because they're not seeming to participate doesn't mean that they're not learning at the highest level that they can learn. So we see it time and again. A child sits there and will not sing the songs or will not get up and dance the dance. And yet when they get home, they will sing every word. They've taken it in in their own way. And there's so many different types of learning. And observational learning is one of the huge ways that kids learn at these ages. Also, there's a lot of social learning going on. And kids, there may be something bothering the kids. So I would say um, the key with groups is to respect the rights of the individual and protect the rights of the group. So you don't have to do the dance that everybody's doing, but you can't stand in the middle because that gets in the way of what everyone else is doing. Or you don't have to listen to the story, but you can't stand in front of the book so other people can't see the pictures. So it's protecting the group's rights and protecting the individual's rights. So So it's not an all-or-nothing situation. There are other things that you can do to facilitate. We need to teach that consideration and the fact that there are other people in the room or in the world, so you can't spoil their fun, but you don't have to do it. You just, um, you know, here, why don't you sit off to the side? Or if you want to stand up, stand up in the back of the room, not in the front of the room. All right, let's go on to one of the next. What, 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 let's go on to another rule. Uh, let's, uh, well, you teased people with homework, so I think we, we ought to dive into that one. We have this um, assumption that, that do your homework is what we need to tell our kids and that homework will help them. Um, so here's what we're finding in the, in the research is that homework, homework's benefits are highly age-dependent. So in high school, there's some benefit. Um, in middle school, not so much. But in elementary school, um, and this is not just one study, it's a review done of 180 different research studies on homework. So the review found that there was zero correlation between time spent on homework and academic um, achievement in elementary school. However, they also found that there was a, kids were developing negative attitudes towards school and learning and homework itself. So if you're starting, and homework's starting younger and younger. In, in the U.S., kindergartners, it's typical to get homework now, and if they don't have it in preschool, parents are starting to demand it in preschool. But at these young ages, it's turning kids more likely off school and it's not giving them the benefit that, that the adults think it is. 
I, you know, when I, I, I read that in your book, and I really, I, that was something that always bothered me about when, when I was raising, when my kids were young, I had three boys, and I always felt that that homework in, in elementary school really took away from family time. I always used to wish, why can't we just, when they come home from school, enjoy ourselves uh, as a, do, you know, be a, a lot more relaxed, be able to do things as a family, especially today when there's less time that kids and parents can be together if you have two working parents. And it really, t- and it was sort of homework, then dinner, and then an activity, and then more homework in bed. And it, it was, um, I didn't feel that, you know, that that was helpful the at best all. Use of their time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you- in your gut, you, you knew, you knew what the kids needed. I mean, as parents, we do. We know they need to go to bed early. And, and that's proving to be the case. You know, homework, the research shows that homework doesn't have this benefit in early elementary school, but sleep does. So early bed will help improve academic performance and behavior. What could be better? But sometimes we feel like uh, we can't send them to bed because they haven't finished their homework. Um, Or we know that what they really need to do, and maybe you know this having raised three boys, is go outside, run around, and hit a tree with a stick. You know, they just need to do their own thing and get that energy out and relax in the way follow their own ideas for once because they have been told what to do all day long and they need to rejuvenate. They need to um, find their own ideas. It's called play. Um, Also being part of the family, learning to do set the table and be part of a family with chores and that kind of nurturing emotional life that a good family will support kids in. But instead of that, we often get the the relationship of sit down at the table and do your homework and a nag-complainer relationship. The parent turns into the patrol cop, especially because these young kids can't remember to do their assignments or even read their assignments at these young ages. And And the kid falls into this role of complainer and procrastinator and not taking responsibility for something that they should be doing later in life when they can handle that responsibility. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as a parent and also as a social worker. But I, I think the other thing you mentioned, sleep is important, but also sitting down at a meal with your family and or friends or whoever is there and not racing and running to get up in five or ten minutes so that you can do your homework, but to be able just to, to relax while you're eating, that's a good thing too. I mean, I think that falls into the, the same sleep area. Um, yes. That, yeah. It's a life skill. It's, it's learning how to balance out life. I mean, uh, right now life is a bit imbalanced for adults, and we're forcing that imbalance on the children. Um, at these ages, they have a lot of learning to do that's not cognitive learning. They have social learning and emotional learning and physical learning, um, and their bodies need to move. So some of when we give them more sit down and do this academic assignment, we're doing more of the same type of learning. And and that's, that's stunting their full growth because they need to be able to develop in multiple ways and get a good grounding in, in all the parts of being human so they're ready for the next stages of life when they're old enough. Yeah. I mean, we're simply just creating more stress or create, creating more stress for them. I mean, it, it, it seems to me when we don't do, as you're describing in your book, you know, uh, we, we don't need to have all of these expectations for our kids and, and literally, as you say, driving them crazy. And you mentioned the word, you know, parents being, you know, you have to do your homework, you have to get it done on time, you have to do this, and you become a policeman. And I used to even say that to them. I feel like a policewoman. I don't want to feel that way. Um, and, and use exactly those words you're describing. Um, yeah, it's so. a big conflict for many, many families every evening. And some kids, 
I hear from parents all over the country because I shared that our family bans homework in elementary school, and we respectfully go up to the teacher and explain how we will support our child's learning and support them in the classroom, and then explain what they need to be doing and um, that our family will not be participating in homework. Um, And so when I shared that, I hear from people all over the place, hundreds of thousands, who write to me and tell me my 8-year-old was up for three hours doing homework in five subjects, and he's in tears by the end of it, and how much do you think he likes school, and just the stories come on and on. Now, some schools balance it so that it's very minimal, but even if it's a five- or ten-minute assignment, um, when you have an overtired five-year-old or an overtired nine-year-old, it always stretches so much, and that emotional impact, instead of nurturing and supporting that child, it's that you have to do this. It, it stretches out and, and just casts a shadow over their after-school hours. Yeah. I think we could agree, and this is the end of, uh, uh, we have to, to say goodbye, um, but um, that's not good parenting. <laughs> it can't be good parenting, um, you know, as you're describing it. Uh, would I'd like a, you know, you give us a website where we can go to, to, I know you do a blog, Starlighting Mama, that's a blog that you uh, do, and you also have a, a website for your book and a website, uh, your website, so give us some more information. So yeah. That, yeah. People can find me at heatherschoemaker.com, and that's where there's a podcast and a, and a blog there, too. So it's all at heatherschoemaker.com, and the books are available wherever books are sold. But I think that the point to leave people with wrapping up on the homework topic and all the topics is just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean it's right for children. Um, And if something's bothering you, it's time to make a change. So adults need to start talking to each other um, in order to find a, a, a better balance for kids. Great advice, and uh, we've been talking to journalist Heather Schumacher, author of It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids. Thanks so much for being with uh, with us this morning. Thanks so much. Yep. We're going to take a short break now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
you'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me is Pete Seat, a former spokesman for President George W. Bush, uh, U.S. Senator Dan Coats and the Indiana Republican Party. Uh, his new book is The War on Millennials, Airing Grievances and Offering Solutions Through the Eyes of America's Next Generation of Leaders. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Pete. Well, thanks for having me, Catherine. All right. That's a big, long title. It really does describe the book, I think. But uh, let's start with who are the millennials? First of all, who are the millennials and why are they in such bad shape? And by the way, you're talking to a baby boomer. You are a millennial. I know that. <laughs> well, so yeah, watch maybe, it. yeah, you may not like the first uh, chapter of the book in that case, but okay. uh, millennials are the 80 million strong group of Americans born between 1980 in the year 2000, and as you said, having been born in 1983, I count myself amongst that group. Um, but the title and, and the premise of the book comes simply for the, f- the fact that um, we are, are slated to become prisoners of the past in, in our uh, adulthood moving down the road because of unprecedented national debt, unsustainable entitlement programs on the fast track to bankruptcy, souring international relations, and a whole host of other obstacles that are in our path. And today, right now, we need champions of the future who are willing to put ideas on the table and achieve measurable results to ensure that we have the same prosperous future and that that flame of prosperity is passed from the baby boomer generation and Generation X to the millennial generation. But Pete, isn't that true of every generation? They always get, you know, each one gets handed mm-hmm. a bad deal of sorts, whether it's the Depression or World War II or World War One or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So is it that qualitatively different for you guys? You know, I, I've talked to, yes, I believe so. I, I've talked to uh, plenty of baby boomer politicians, elected officials uh, in person. You, you hear them out on the stump as well. And they talk about how they're concerned that this, that their generation could be the first that won't uh, pass on a country better than the one they inherited uh, from their parents and grandparents. And it's, it's a real fear out there. And you, you can't mask the fact that we have an over $17 trillion debt. And let's be honest, Boomers won't have to pay for that. It will be millennials who will have to pay that bill, and it will mean fewer opportunities for 
uh, entrepreneurs and risk-taking in this country as we're uh, cleaning up the mess. And I would also point out very quickly, I'm not the only one who has said this. Boomers themselves, the former governor of my home state, Mitch Daniels, uh, Joel Klein, a, a writer for Time Magazine, and plenty of others have said, you know, our generation has not lived up to our billing, and and we still have a lot to do to make sure that that flame is, is passed on to the next generation. All right, so what do we do? I mean, it sounds very mm-hmm. grim. Uh, rather mm-hmm. depressing, like we've done a really bad job, although I think we've done a really good job in many in many other areas, perhaps not the ones you're talking about, but mm-hmm. in terms of civil rights and those kinds of things and women's rights and women's issues, and I think we're going in the right direction. Um, so that's something else. But, okay, so, but as you, as you're describing it, well, uh, the debt is, what did you say, 17 trillion dollar debt it's almost something it's unimaginable but so what do we do what what are the solutions to the the issues that you've just discussed sure well well first things first and this this may sound uh very fanciful but we need to stop uh, fanning the flames of political division you know you've got these political mercenaries who are whispering stage directions from behind the curtain encouraging their bosses, our current elected leaders, aspiring elected leaders, to just throw out sound bites uh, and and argue and debate all the time. Um, if that's not that's not going to fix our problems, sure, it'll get you on television and it'll probably help with some fundraising, but that's not the job. I, I think there's too many people who run for office who view winning the campaign as crossing the finish line. That's, that's the goal. It's winning the campaign. But that's just the beginning of the job of governing. You run but isn't for that office. the nature of politics today? I mean, the nature of the people who run because of the way, I mean, people who or don't want to run. Let's say good people don't want to run sure. in the Republican Party, even in the Democratic Party, because they don't want to be exposed. They, you know, there's just all sorts of, uh, you know, they're I mean, just, you know, simply they don't want to have the uh, be vetted in the way that they're vetted today. And, and so people who perhaps would have run maybe 20 years ago won't do it now because it's just and so you kind of get I don't want to say a, the quality of the, the politicians, I think, in both parties, perhaps is um, not what it was. You don't get the same kind of leadership. I, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I, I think there's something to that. I think I think very <clears throat> a number, if not most, of our elected leaders, and I'll just talk about you know Washington specifically in Congress, um, come there with um, a sense of purpose individually, but as a collective group, they're dysfunctional. Um, there's a, a section in the book that I call cut, "Cutting the Cost of Public Service." Uh, to your point about you know the. All we focus on, it seems, is opposition research and tearing down the characters of, of people who run for office. There's a plenty of reasons why that's the case, but I think why millennials are becoming more and more detached and disillusioned from political parties and the political process in general is because of that. That's not what they're interested in. It's not what we are interested in. We want to see ideas and results, and until we do, I think more and more millennials are just going to tune out. 
When you say tune out, what do you mean? They're just not going to become. They're not going to get involved in politics. They're not interested. Yeah. They're not. Well, yeah. I mean, look at uh, how I believe it was Harvard um, was the most recent poll to show that somewhere in the range of twenty five percent. Uh, if not slightly a tick below that, 25% of millennials plan to vote in the midterm election. I mean, this is an election that could very well determine uh, control of the U.S. Senate. It will determine control of the U.S. Senate and what the final two years of Barack Obama's presidency look like. And millennials just aren't interested because it's, it's all about character assassination. It's all about uh, opposition research and who can get into the gutter quicker than the other candidate when we are really looking for, we understand the problems that, that we are facing. Uh, you know, every single poll that comes out about millennials, we have a better and, and um, you know, uh, understanding of what is happening. I mean, I'd, I'd throw out the fact that the millennial generation, according to a couple surveys that have come out recently, have been saving more and earlier than every other previous American generation. We get it. We get that we can't wait for the government to do it for us. We get that we have to provide for ourselves individually and for our families. Um, you, but, uh, yeah, I want to, I, this, I, I'm really surprised to hear you saying that millennials are saving more. Um, absolutely. Like, how, what are they doing to say, I mean, I, I'm hearing that millennials are coming back and living with their parents because they can't afford, I mean, maybe that's how they're saving, but they don't, they yeah. can't, can't live in an apartment, you know, they can't afford an apartment or they can't afford to buy a house, so they're coming back and living with their families of origin. But when you say saving, explain that. What do you mean? Sure. They're, 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 yeah. Well, so, you know, there's also stories out there about, oh, millennials aren't, aren't purchasing houses. Okay, for some, that's an affordability factor. But for others, they're just not interested in owning a home. Uh, for instance, myself, I live in an apartment. Have since I left college in 2005. I've always lived in an apartment, um, and to me, that's much more comfortable than owning a home. I like being in the city. I like being close to the attractions and being able to, you know, the, the city of Indianapolis is a wonderful place because you can walk everywhere in our downtown. It's very accommodating. Um, you can't necessarily live in a home and have that. Secondly, a lot of millennials like public transportation, and so they won't purchase a car. And that's those are all savings and home insurance and car insurance and the cost of maintaining both that they can then put in a bank account and save for their future. Well, as long as they are taking the money and doing that and not spending it on other things, maybe, you know, things that aren't tangible. I mean, do we know that they actually have bank accounts? I mean, is that, you know, are there statistics that say, okay, they're not buying houses, they're not buying cars, but what are they doing with their money? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's survey information out there. I, I unfortunately don't know some of it off the top of my head, but I have been as surprised as you, I'll be honest, <laughs> to see this information and that we're you know, uh, saving more and at a higher and faster rate than, than previous generations. But I think we learned so much coming of age during the Great Recession. We saw what it meant for our, our parents and grandparents to, to watch 401Ks get depleted um, and are trying to, you know, rebuild those reserves and, and, and provide for their retirement. And we watched it. We watched it happen and said, we're not going to allow that to happen to ourselves, so we're going to make, you know, start earlier and make the right decisions 
so our future is better. Okay, so you're saving your money. Good, that's number one. Yes. What yes. else are you doing to rectify what we, the baby boomers, have done to destroy the country? <laughs> <laughs> At least you admit it. I appreciate that. No, I'm kidding. But um, we had fun doing it, really. <laughs> yeah, well, that's part of the problem. <laughs> um, is, you know, what, what's so interesting, uh, I think, about millennials is, yes, we're detaching ourselves from... Uh, political parties, from uh, institutions in general, but are finding avenues to contribute to the world uh, on our own, starting small nonprofits. You know, that I, I know, I, know uh, I have a friend who, who started her own small nonprofit to help build homes in Africa and was able to raise enough money to live in Africa for several years. Uh, and there are plenty of other stories like that around the country of millennials saying, you know what, I'm not going to wait for someone else or something else to do it. I'm going to make it happen on my own. I want to make change in this world, and I'm going to do my part. And when you add all those up, it's, very, it's a very significant impact that we have already had at a very young age in trying to better our world. Well, so you're doing business differently. I think one reason you're able sure. to do that, too, obviously, is the Internet, the digital age. It's easier to start businesses without much capital. Uh-huh. A lot, um, So that makes it easier. You don't need a brick-and-mortar office building to, to start a business. I mean, I think that's all part of it, don't you? Absolutely, and we've, we've certainly, you know, we're, we're technology natives um, as opposed to technology adapters, and we have grown up with, you know, a smartphone in our hand and texting and emailing uh, for the last several years. I remember when I was in high school, uh, as, as antiquated as this might sound, I had a pager, um, you know, kind of clipped to my belt, and my I'm mom was probably the only person who pager. used it, but, <laughs> 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 you know, my mom was always paging me to find out where I was, and it's like, you realize I have to find a pay phone in order to call you back. Um, but, yeah, we've, we, you know, technology is... is second nature to us, and, and we, we find ways to uh, utilize it to, to achieve our goals. All right, so we've, you've already tackled two of the solutions, Again, obviously it's in more detail in the book, uh, but uh, the war on millennials, but savings, millennials are saving, mm-hmm. are saving uh, new types of businesses, uh, being creative about those. What else? You know, I, I think a big thing, and we're, we're starting to do this here in the Indi- uh, state of Indiana, is working to diversify our economy. And what I mean by that is, you know, for so many years, everyone has been told you have to go to college, that that is, you know, the way to have a comfortable and, and, and prosperous life is to go to college, to get a bachelor's degree, and possibly a master's or doctorate if you choose. But there are so many good-paying jobs that do not require a bachelor's degree. And we have hundreds, if not thousands of them, here in the state of Indiana right now, good-paying technical jobs that require a vocational education. What are those jobs? But, and is you, where are those jobs? And is Indiana unique, or is this something that is true of, Many of the states. Oh, this is, it's it's true around the country. Yeah, that there are there are manufacturing, uh, highly skilled manufacturing jobs available out there, but people who don't possess the skills to do them. I, 
you know, I, I went to a, uh, a factory floor uh, not long ago. It's been a couple years now, I guess. And a lot of what they do, it was uh, they, they coiled steel, was automated but controlled by individuals sitting at gigantic computers who controlled the entire process. And it takes a very special skill set to be able to do this. This isn't just you know moving a mouse around on on uh, on your your uh, your MacBook or your your Windows PC. This is highly skilled technical labor jobs that I know I know people who were better suited for that. They were better suited to repair cars and to build things, but felt like they had to go to college because that's what society tells you to do. And I, I think we need to move away from that mindset and say, you know, pursue what you want to, and here are opportunities to do that. And more and more high schools are, are beefing up their vocational training and education, and I think that's a great, great thing for us moving forward. Yeah, I agree with you, and I see there is a push for that. This, I, I think uh, um, and community colleges are doing that. I mean, the push for, you know, mm-hmm. you can go to a two-year college. You don't have to go to a four-year college and get a BA, but you can be trained in, in, in ways that you just described. Um, so there has to be a, an attitude change for people to really feel that it is important and also know that, that those jobs are available. I, I think the media is always sort of, there's nothing out there unless you get a college degree, and you know you won't be able to find a job. And manufacturing has gone down the tubes, and that's what young people hear, which obviously is not a good thing because, as you're saying, there are jobs out there, and there are training programs for that as well. Right, and, and you know what we did here, I think, is a, a, a great program uh, called Indiana Work Councils, and they're bringing together educators, business leaders. Uh, you know, folks from the manufacturing sector and, and people that are running schools and saying, okay, how can we all work together to ensure that, that Hoosier students, in, students in Indiana, are college and or career ready? Whether they choose to go to college, that's their choice, or if they choose to immediately jump into a, a you know, technically skilled labor job after we want to make sure that they're prepared and ready to go, and let's make it happen. And they're already um, building new curriculum programs to make sure that's the case. What are some of the other solutions? I mean, you've named, what, three mm-hmm. of them already. Um, and, and I know there's, there's a lot, obviously, to cover in your book, and I'll mention the book again so our listeners <laughs> can go and, and buy it on bookstores everywhere online, The War on Millenni- Millennials. So, um, what are some of the other solutions? I mean, I, I, and I have to say, you know, I am a baby boomer, which I told you, but I have three children who are two Gen Xs and one millennial. So some of this is, you know, as you're talking, is ringing true. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, let's go. What else? What else can you guys do to rectify right. Well, of situation. course, I don't want to give it all away. It's, well, no, you know, in the book. A, yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, one thing I would say real quick um, Millennials, just so everyone knows, spelled with two N's, sorry, two L's and two N's, because um, I, I spell it wrong myself sometimes. So if you are looking for the book out there, I uh, want to make sure you spell it right. Um, well, one thing that I, that I really um, focus on in the book uh, is, is the power of tweaking. And that's to say we, we, we have, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but there is a perception uh, in our country that anything less than a big idea 
is not worth the time of day. Um, but I think that we, we can't allow the perception of complexity uh, to prevent us from achieving acts of simplicity. Uh, give you know, us an example. Sure. Yeah, yeah so, because we don't have to be a Steve Jobs necessarily, but we still can accomplish something. Well, look, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Steve Jobs because there, he's actually an example in the book. He himself was a tweaker. You know, let's be honest, smartphones were already out there. He didn't create smartphones. He took smart, the, the idea of smartphones and slightly made a tweak to it, made it a touch screen, and said, here's an iPhone. He just improved what was already in the marketplace. And every time there's been a new version of an iPhone, it's nothing more than a tweak of the previous one. But people get excited. It's a larger screen. It's faster. The processor is better. It's thinner, what have you. But it's improving the product. They recognize that it's, you know, the first time the iPhone came out, it wasn't the best product. It was going to be improved. And I think government can learn a lot from that. Um, the example uh, in the book that's, that's detailed is Social Security. And, you know, it is a complex program. And I think in many ways we have allowed the complexity of it um, and the, the vastness of this program to prevent us from making relatively minor tweaks to it that can add years of solvency to the program. There's a wonderful calculator um, out there by the uh, Council, Council for a Responsible Budget that you can, you can go. It's interactive. You can play around with different solutions uh, for Social Security, whether it's means testing or, or raising the cap on taxable wages, um, et cetera. There's a whole ho- there's you know 30 or 40 different things you can do, and you can play around with them in different combinations to try and improve the solvency of the program. And I almost want to send that link to everyone in Congress and say, here, play around with this. Here's some relatively easy things we can do. That well, will you know, why don't program. you? I would say when you're ta- as you were telling me this or talking to us, that's what I would do. The politicians know about this, and if they don't, why don't you tell them? Well, I've told as many as I, as I can, and, and, you know, as I've been running around promoting the book, um, you know, I've, I've encouraged them to check it out. Because I'm like, look, we've, you know, it's really about tweaking these programs and, and fixing them and making them better. And, you know, I, I'm a theater guy. I was trained in theater. I was a theater major in college. And I was taught a very simple premise in, in improvisational theater. You're taught yes and. You're on the stage, and when someone says, I'm a doctor, you say yes and. You run with it. You continue the scene. But everyone in Washington seems to be more interested in no, but, and discrediting and discounting ideas that are on the table. I think if we just accept what we have and make it better, we will be better off. Tweaking. We have to tweak, not overhaul. That's the word that comes to kind of the 180 to me from that. Uh, yes, every, it's always, it's, it's either or it, we have to change the entire system we have, you know, and I think that's been our attitude. I would agree with you for the past thirty years at least. So, tweaking, tweaking, tweaking—that's um, a great concept. Yeah, I well, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I hope it's it's, it's, it's one that uh, that people yeah. take to heart. Yeah. 
So, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, so you're in theater background, which is interesting. Uh, that's a whole other question. We only actually have a, a couple minutes left, so maybe I won't get mm-hmm. into that. But um, I just want to mention, because we only have a couple minutes, um, the waronmillennials.com is the website to go to. And the title of the book is The War on Millennials, Airing Grievances and Offering Solutions Through the Eyes of America's Next Generation of Leaders. And I think, you know what, Pete, I think the word solutions, very often, and I think you've been talking about this throughout the interview, we we respond with saying, no, 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 we're not going to do it. But nobody actually talks about solutions or wants to focus on that. What are the solutions, which is what your book does. So, um, Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I hope that more, more of our elected officials and those who aspire to be um, talk about solutions. And, you know, I, I'm reminded of a Milton Friedman quote that I'll just paraphrase, which is essentially um, – you know, what seems politically impossible today um, will down the road become politically inevitable. And it will be the ideas that have already been on the table for maybe decades that will be the ideas that are ultimately implemented. And, you know, we get discouraged in the moment that something we throw out there may not happen, but maybe 10 years down the road it will, and, and it will be worth it in the end. A great quote to end with, and thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Pete Seat, The War on Millennials. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.